I read a sermon last week by one of my favorite preachers who began by saying in his, in his little homily that there's nowhere in the Bible, there's nowhere in the New Testament specifically where we are instructed or called to become Christian. Nowhere does Jesus say, here are the things you must follow, the steps you must take. Nowhere does the Apostle Paul or Peter or John or any of the other New Testament writers proclaim this is what one must do. This is what one must believe, or this is what one must become in order to be considered a Christian. There's no, there's no call to become a Christian, nothing like that at all. That, that might seem like a, a little bit of interesting biblical trivia, but it's really fascinating to me, especially considering the background that some of us may have, especially the one that I had growing up in more fundamentalist-style churches where we were told these are the specific things one must do and one must believe. You have, in fact, one church, I had to sign my name at the end of a long list of doctrinal beliefs in order to be considered a Christian and a member of that congregation. So it kind of dawned on me last week as I was reading this, this, this sermon and thinking about my own life and, and my understanding of the Gospels and my understanding of the New Testament and the Bible as a whole, it's true. There is not a single place in, in, the, in our texts where we're told, do this, and then you will be a Christian person. Instead, the Gospels especially invite us over and over again to follow in the way of Jesus, to follow in the way of his teachings, the way of his life, the way he lived his life. I had over 100 folks who were registered for my Bible study this, this last fall, this last six weeks. We studied through the Gospel of Matthew, and what we discovered week after week after week, that Jesus constantly invited his disciples to follow him. They would stumble and fall, they would, they would fail, they would make mistakes, they would be confused all the way along through, but Jesus never stopped inviting them, stand back up, come on with me, let's go, follow me. My son Nate is a huge fight fan, loves boxing, he was a boxer at one time. He quotes Muhammad Ali to me all the time. He'll say, remember dad what Muhammad Ali said, it's not how many times you knock your opponent down, it's how many times you get up after you've been knocked down, that defines whether or not you're a champion. That's not exactly the words of Jesus, but that's pretty similar. It doesn't really matter how many times you stumble or fall or fail. The real question is, are you you willing to get up again and go and move forward? In the text that we heard this morning, Jesus is instructing his disciples how they are to live. Throughout the Gospel of John, as I mentioned, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus constantly says, follow me. In the Gospel of John, it's a similar phrase, only slightly different. People constantly say, come and see. Could this be the Messiah? I encountered this man at the well. Could this be the one? I heard this man teach and preach. Could this be? Come and see. That's the phrase that's repeated throughout the Gospel of John. Come and see. Come and see. It's an invitation to follow in the way of Jesus. And then in our text... Here's Jesus gathered with his, his disciples. It's a, it's a quiet, intimate moment. It's the night before the crucifixion. It's the night he'll be, be betrayed, denied, arrested. The anxiety and the fear just hang in the room like a, like a heavy cloud of smoke. And yet Jesus cuts through all of that and speaks clarity into their fear. I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, it's interesting to note that that's really not a new commandment. It's something that had been a part of of the Jewish faith for centuries. Read through the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and you will will find that the teaching appears over and over again. Love God, love your neighbors yourself. 
Love God, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor, love God. Care for those who are in your midst. That, that teaching is a part of it. But what's fascinating here is that Jesus does amend it slightly. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the newness in it. In other words, as we've experienced this life together and the way that we have lived and breathed and, and, and worked and, and taught together, there you'll find instruction on how, on, how to, on how to live as I have loved you. Think about the stories that are in the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, Jesus changes water to wine. It's a beautiful story. It's one you've heard before. It's one, it's one that people like to, to, to use as kind of a joke with preachers. I don't know if this happens to, to Ron or, or to Jim, but just last week, Julie and I were out with some friends and, uh, for dinner, and, and uh, you know, the waiter came by and brought us some, some water, and our friend sitting across the table looked at me and said, well, aren't you going to do something with that water? I said, trust me, if I could, I would. We'd save a few dollars if we just could change the water in, into wine. That would be a nice thing. But it's really a, a sweet and precious story that demonstrates how Jesus' miracle, his first sign, his first miracle in the world, according to God, John's gospel, came with no fanfare, no lights shining. No one even knows that it happens other than his mother and his disciples. He simply helps this couple who are running out of wine at their wedding celebration continue to have the party. It's also kind of fun to note that Mary's the one who seems to understand better than Jesus here at the beginning of his ministry what he's really called to do. He doesn't want to do anything about it, and she says, no, you will, come on. And then she says to the wine steward, do whatever he says. They bring out the wine, the water. It's changed into wine. They taste it. It's the best wine anyone has ever had. But the party goes on, and no one knows what's happened. Then consider John chapter 4. Jesus meets a woman at the well. He's in Samaria. She's a Samaritan woman. It's the middle of the day. Think about that. They're enemies. They have different religions, different understandings of, their, of how their faith is to be practiced. A man talking to a woman in the middle of the day would have been considered scandalous, especially at the well. Would have been scandalous. And yet Jesus, Jesus doesn't mock her. He doesn't make fun of her. He doesn't attack her. He doesn't deride her. He doesn't call her any names. What does he do? He treats her with kindness and respect, and grace. She's, she's had five husbands. She's been misused and abused by men her entire life. Maybe for the first time ever, a man is treating her like a human being. She's so amazed at this experience, she runs back to her village and says, could this be the Messiah? He didn't do any miracles. He didn't give her any great gigantic teaching. Oh, there's teaching that happens. But what, what I think she sees in him as, mess, as messianic, as the Messiah, is the fact that he's kind to her, gracious. Now, again, they were political enemies. They were theological, theological enemies. There was, every, there was every reason in the book for him to attack her, to deride her, to call her names, to abuse her. Instead, he simply chooses to be kind. And in that, she thinks she's experienced God. And then go on, skip on ahead to John chapter 8. It's that other well-known story in the Gospel of John where a woman's been caught in adultery. A group of angry men, all of them with rocks in their hands, drag, their, drag her in front of Jesus, throw, him, throw her down at his feet and say, now you know what the Bible says, Jesus. It's very clear. A woman caught in adultery is to be stoned to death. By the way, the, the text they're referring to also says that the man should be stoned. 
I can't prove it, but I, I sincerely believe that the one who was caught with her is now hiding in the midst of that angry mob, and he too has a rock. He too wants to silence her. He too wants to push her aside. This angry mob is in front of Jesus. They're trying to trick him. They don't care about the woman. They're using her again. And Jesus, again, in a calm voice, what does he say? You remember the story? The one without sin, you begin. And then from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their rocks and they walk away. You see, it doesn't, it doesn't take a theological degree. It doesn't take all years of study to understand what, what Jesus is saying to his disciples here in this upper room on the night before he is to be executed, crucified. The, the gospel itself shows the way of life. Simply being kind and gracious to the other is a way of following in the footsteps of Jesus, of allowing his way, his love, to be the same one that we practice just have a party. What would happen, for example, if, you, if some of us this week went to somebody on our street that we know, somebody who has a sign that is for the opposite opponent for the one we're voting for, and if we invited him over for a little bread and a little wine, what would, what would happen in that moment? What would that be like? My, my, my wife is a, is, a, is a wonderful example of this, but the other day our son Stephen called. He's 23 now. He's about to graduate well, we think he's about to graduate from, from the University of Missouri. He's a great kid, very talented. He said, he called up and said, Mom, I just got to call you. It's the middle of the day. Just call in the middle of the day. I just got to call you. It dawned on me. I woke up today realizing Nate and I, Nate's his older brother, our oldest son. Nate and I could be terrible to you. We could be mean to you. We could mistreat you when we were little especially and just say terrible things about you. And then a couple hours later, you'd be like, hey, boys, would you like a sandwich? Are you hungry? Do you need something to eat? Our son Stephen was saying, I saw in you, Mom, the graciousness of love. Oh, now she, would, she wouldn't put up with their behavior. Trust me, she would deal with that too. But that anger and frustration over their behavior didn't color the way she treated them the rest of the day and on into the evening. It's, it's really as, as, as clear and uncomplicated as that. But isn't it sad how often our Christianity has looked like something almost ungracious. How often we seem to use our faith as a way to attack the other, to, to, to put the other down, to even fall apart into name calling. Philip Yancey was on a plane, he's a Christian writer. He was on a plane years ago and he was doing some research for his new book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And so he asked all the people around him on the plane, I'm just doing a little bit of research. I'm, I'm writing about the Christian faith. How would you describe Christians? How would you describe the Christian faith? Every single person on that plane, eight or nine or 10 of them that he talked to, all of them said judgmental, angry, punishing, mean-spirited. What would happen if we could take hold of the world with the teachings of Jesus, not only in our church, but in our community, in our country, and on this one planet that we share together? What does that love look like? What does it mean to let forgiveness, as experienced by the woman who was brought before Jesus, what would it mean to experience forgiveness in a way that blesses us and blesses those around us? There was, a, there was an uneducated man. His name was Adam. He grew up in Appalachia. Adam was, he dropped out of school like in fourth or fifth grade. 
he was a meth-cooking, fast-driving, hard-drinking son of a gun, as some would have said about him. And then one day, while he was driving his pickup truck too fast, he rolled it. It rolled over several times. Luckily, he'd remembered to put on his seatbelt, and somehow he survived. He, got, he walked out of the truck, stepped back, and said, I should be dead. And in that moment, in that moment in his story, he says, that's when I got saved hard. Don't you love that phrase? He was saved hard. He gave his heart and soul to Jesus in that kind of that old-fashioned way. His mother was a free will Baptist. She was shouting hallelujahs for a month when she saw her son suddenly, amazingly, overwhelmingly, in the moment, stop with the past, the meth cooking and the hard living and all that stuff, and just give himself over to sharing the love, grace, and forgiveness of God. He went to the chaplain at the jail that he should have gone to and said, what can I do? And the chaplain said, what you can do is share your story. The men here need to hear your story. Why don't you preach for me once a week? And so he did. And he became famous around that part of Kentucky for his ability to tell his story and to speak clearly about the forgiveness and love of God that he, that he had found. In fact, so much, there was so much power in his story, he was invited by a professor at the seminary at Harvard to come and give a lecture to his seminary students about forgiveness and grace. It was so powerful, it moved everyone in the class. And the, the professor said, even the Presbyterian seminarians were crying at the end. That's, that's the message that Jesus has been trying to get us to understand since he walked on this earth. And the key to understanding this is found in the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples. They've been together now for years. One scholar that I read thinks that the Gospel of John reports 10 years of Jesus' ministry. That's a fascinating idea for, for another time, but they've been together for at least three, maybe as much as 10. They've grown close together. They've been together, and now they're here in their fear and their worry and the anxiety, and Jesus uses a term that appears nowhere else. It's a term of endearment. My little children. It's, it's like my buddies, my best friends, my dearest ones. My little children, remember, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. It's a clear and simple word. Can we put a value on it? Absolutely not. There is no, there is no monetary value that can finally be assigned to that gift of love. It's, 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 it's beyond value. It really is a, a fascinating and beautiful way of life. And yet, we kind of get stuck, don't we? You know, we're in the middle of our, our, our campaign this, for, for this fall for our, our sustaining partners' work. We're trying to fund the budget for next year and all the stuff. And you've you already heard Abby Joe's beautiful testimony this morning, all that she had to say. It's fascinating to note, though, while we're thinking about money and funds and the way it affects our life or it affects our church, do you know what Dave Ramsey says is the number one cause of divorce? Do you know that name, Dave Ramsey, the financial guru guy? He says the number one cause of divorce is not a moral issue, not a falling out of love, but financial matters. He says in his experience, in his research, people get divorced most often because of financial issues, of money troubles and problems. Now, I would add that, that money isn't really the root of the problem. Money is neutral. It has no, 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 there's no, nothing connected to it necessarily. The problem is seen in lives that are built using money on greed and gluttony, selfishness, arrogance, and, and a lack of trust, money becomes a tool to fund our own egos. That's when the problem develops, and it can destroy a marriage, it can destroy a church, it can destroy a country even. My good buddy Adam Hamilton says in his book, a book about money titled Enough, 
that this problem with money is, and I'm quoting him now, the American nightmare. Listen to what he says. We are suffering the consequences of our addiction to consumption and compulsive buying. And yet our desire for more is never satisfied. This is because there is a deeper problem, one that is within us. You hear what he's saying? We're never quite satisfied. This American nightmare, we're constantly wanting more and more and more and more. And it's our brokenness that has created this. Our brokenness that we're unable to ever fill. Our brokenness that we're unable to ever heal completely. And yet it never seems, no matter how much we buy, no matter how much we attain, we never quite fill that brokenness or heal that that pain, that wound, whatever it might be. I've seen this in my own family. Maybe you've seen it in yours, too. My father was a brilliant preacher. My father could stand in the pulpit without a single bit of notes and preach a 20, 30, sometimes 45-minute sermon without batting an eye. You could be moved to tears and laughing in the next moment and inspired and challenged and set out the door to go and lead a new life. And yet that invitation to a new life was one that he struggled with on his own. You see, a, a therapist friend of mine said, your father probably experienced when he was a child what, what my friend called a deep narcissistic wound, something deep within his soul that had never been repaired. And so he spent his life then instead trying to fill that with whatever he could. He had severe problems with addiction. He went to rehab three different times. His church in San Francisco graciously sent him off three different times, three different times he fell off the wagon. It was painful and hard to watch. The addiction ruined his career, almost destroyed our family, almost took his own life. We knew though finally that he was clean because when he, he no longer was on the drugs, he started eating a lot and he ate and ate and ate and ate until he was close to 500 pounds when his life ended in his late 70s. What was he trying to do? He was trying to fill that emptiness, that sorrow, that sadness. There was never enough, never, never enough for him to feel as though he had experienced the love and the grace of God that he preached. You see, John's writing to a church that is broken. He's writing to a church that is wounded He's writing to a church that maybe even be, may be in conflict, theological conflict, political conflict from the outside. Who could imagine such a thing? Who knows exactly what's going on with them? But he wants them to see and understand that the only way through is to follow in the ways of Jesus, to come and see the new life that he leads us toward. It's an amazing thing to witness when it happens. Yesterday, there was a beautiful wedding here. Hillary and Drew stood right here before this table and made vows and promises to each other. And they walked down the center aisle together as, as husband and wife. There are about 150 guests. It was a beautiful moment and reminded me of another wedding I did 20 years ago. It was just the three of us, a man and a woman and me. They'd gotten a confidential marriage license. They wanted to say to each other in their church, how much they loved one another. And so although they were already legally married, they walked down the center aisle with me in that empty sanctuary surrounded by 750 seats. We came up onto the chancel. We lit the, we lit the candles that were there in that church on their table also. I turned and I, I led them through my ceremony, one that I practically memorized, never cried before, 
But I began to weep as I, I led them to this seminary, through this ceremony. Why? I knew their stories. She'd been divorced three times. In two of them, she was physically abused. He'd been divorced twice, and he'd been in prison for almost two years for some white-collar crime, bank fraud or some such thing, which he fully acknowledged and pled guilty to. Their, their lives were unbelievably painful, and yet somehow, through the grace of God, the work of the Spirit, they'd found each other. And in the vows spoken in that large, empty space, you could practically see the Spirit of God. Faith, hope, and love are the greatest gifts. As Paul wrote, as Jesus proclaimed, the greatest of these is love. Amen.